I, I want us to deal with um, an important part of um, scripture. I, I was looking through and I thought one of the things that we need to speak a little bit about, I think I addressed the men to some extent last week. It was Father's Day. Um, and thank you for acting graciously towards our city campus, you know, humbling ourselves and allowing them to win. Uh, two, th- two, three, right? It's not too bad except there were several disallowed goals that would have changed that significantly. But we thank God for the referees when they favor us. Um, and, and, and part of it is um, we also want to address the woman and her place um, in terms of God's calling upon her life. But before we go there, so we'll be, going, we'll be looking a little bit at the book of Ruth because it... it it depicts a family in, um, in crisis. And, and part of what we need to answer is um, what happens when we find ourselves at the brink, in a sense, of extinction, um, when all kinds of disasters have befallen us and the family's ability to continue seems stunted. Like, you know, is there hope uh, when tragedy strikes? Um, is there a way that we can pick ourselves and still continue? And beyond picking ourselves, does God have a plan for a family like that, that has been beset by all kinds of calamities, and there seems to be no hope for the future? And so we'll be looking at how God works through even what looks like hopeless situation to bring about his redemptive grace and the ability of God to speak. After all, he's still the creator ex nihilo. He creates the things out of nothing. He can still speak life into a situation that is dead. So we'll look at the book of Ruth. But before we do that, uh, let me just capture uh, chapter 5, which is where we would be if we were continuing on the Genesis series. And, And this is what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. Man there is Adam, generic, those of the creatures of the earth, when they were created. Then verse 3, listen, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. There's a break there, you realize. When he created man, God created man in his image, in his likeness. Now, 130 years later, Adam gets a son in his image, in his own likeness, confirming the fall. That man no longer reflects in his fullness the image of God. Now, Seth will reflect the image of Adam as opposed to fully the image of God. It is life on this side of paradise, this side of the fall. And and as you read that, you realize, again, confirming the fall, the days of Adam in verse 4, after he fathered Seth about 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after um, he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905, and he died. That refrain is not there by accident. It is depicting life after the fall. 
and the confirmation of the great lie, you shall not surely die. And a lot of human experience on this side of paradise is replete with sorrow and grief and tears and sadness. It's the reality of where we live. You know, when Christ comes to mention or to make a mission statement, you find it in Luke chapter 4, you also find it in Isaiah 69. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has sent me to preach good news to the poor. We are the poor, okay? You probably didn't know this. Yeah, to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. And then he goes on and on and on. And he mentioned about, you know, exchanging our sorrow for joy. You know, exchanging our tears. Um, I, I forget the exact rephrase, but it's a beautiful psalm. But when you read it, there is nothing in there that talks about Jesus coming to join us in our celebration or in our partying. It's like the entire human experience is framed in, in, in a great measure in sorrow and grief, healing the brokenhearted, speaking hope to the hopeless, you know, to minister for those who grieve in Zion and to provide for those who sorrow in Israel. And that's his entire mission statement because that colors the human experience. It's life outside of paradise, outside of what God had envisioned it. And that statement, and he died, will continue to mirror and to frame the human experience on this side of the fall. So I, I think, um, and, and that's why I want us to look at the book of Ruth, because it kind of captures a family in distress, a family in distress uh, who find themselves uh, hopes dashed, uh, plans completely in disarray, things that they thought they would achieve as a family, unachievable, and they find themselves in a, in a season of great desolation. And the real question is, then what happens to the great plan of God? You know, because he's saying he's taking us somewhere and that there is victory. And the overall experience that we will have when we are with him is that we will not be defeated. Yes, we'll go through trials and tribulations, but somehow there's a glimmer of hope. And, and I want us to see the activity of God, especially in very distressful situations where there almost seems to be no hope, where it's easy to give up and say, you know what? You know, this thing is not worth it. I've tried, but nothing seems to be working. I look at the future, everything looks bleak. It looks like there's a word of God that um, he gives us so that we will not just give up. So then, turn to the book of Ruth with me, if you will. It's after, immediately after the book of Judges, and, 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 and it is framed at a time when even the history of Israel itself is very, very bleak. The times of Judges were not good times because the generation of Joshua, the conquerors, you know, the greats, they had, they had died, him and those who had outlived him. So Joshua is gone. And then there's no uh, clear leadership that is left. There are no kings and there's nobody who's now leading. In fact, it begins with, you know, who shall go before us? And then the Lord says, okay, the tribe of Judah. But there's no clear leadership. And what results is a great disaster. In fact, the book ends with civil war, you know. Israel turning against the Benjamin tribe, and they almost exterminate that tribe, a civil war. The last statement in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel in those days. Everybody did as what they did, uh, what they deemed fit in their own eyes. And so, it's an age of relativism, you know? What is it that works for you? You do it. It's a, a little bit like, 
you know, uh, what is happening now when there is no clear leadership, clear moral leadership, even in the great nations. You know, today I can come and say, you know, I, I, I identify as a lady. You know, I identify as a girl. Maybe that's why I'm wearing hot pink or something. <laughs> There's no clear moral leadership. Everybody does as they did feel, do, deem fit. And what results is chaos. So the book is framed in a time when it is very um, uh, fluid in terms of leadership. And so it begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man, and one wonders whether the, the rule of the judges is related with the famine. I don't know. Uh, what we do know is that whenever the land would turn into idolatry and evil and sinfulness, then God would forsake them. He would withhold the reins sometimes to discipline them so that they will come back to him and cry out. It doesn't state it here, but it's a likely outcome uh, of what might have happened in those days. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their sons were Mahalon and Kilion. So already there are hints that are given here that all is not well. They are from Bethlehem of Judah. Now, hindsight gives you vision 2020, so we know Bethlehem and Judah have certain significance because later on we will hear of the lion from the tribe of who? From the tribe of Judah, the conqueror, you know, the one that we celebrate. But also Bethlehem is where Messiah will be born. And, and, and Bethlehem, ironically, means Beth is house and Lehem is bread, the house of bread, okay? So they've left the house of bread to go to Moab. Moab is, you know, the territorial enemy of Israel, the place that they were never to go to, the people they were never to intermarry or interact with. But now they have moved and gone there. The name of the leader of the family, Elimelech. El is always short for Elohim. Melech is king. God is my king, you know? So there's a bit of irony there. Is God really your king? Do you trust him? You're leaving the land of bread, the house of bread, to go to enemy territory, and you're taking and relocating your family there. Is that okay? And we'll see that he was seeking permanent solutions, not good solutions, for a temporary problem. And that's an issue. So there were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. That's a problem. You know, it's one thing to go and pass by and then come back, but they remain. Probably overstayed their welcome. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. That's another problem. God says you will not intermarry with them. You will not give your daughters to them for marriage and you will not take their daughters. Why? Because when you intermarry, they will teach you their ways and you will worship their gods. And then I will turn against you and I will destroy you. That's what God had warned. But the two sons take Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the other one was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and they, uh, about 10, uh, 10 years. And both Mahalon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Very desolate situation. Now we have three 
mourning widows. Um, and then we wonder, so what's, what's the hope? And at this point, there are no children. There are three, three ladies and there are no children. There's no one to inherit the faith. There's no one to, to carry the, the, into the next generation their values, their God, their ways. And one has, it's like you've come to a dead end, even in terms of propagation. And Naomi will confess, I'm too old to get another kid, you know? So this is it. It has ended badly. And in times like this, then you must ask them, you know, is, is there going to be hope for a family like this? Um, and there are many families that fall, face different types of uh, catastrophes and disasters and, 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 and um, difficulties. And, and you sometimes wonder, is there a way forward? But just a commentary on this move. Um, and this falls mostly to the role of the um, family leader. Uh, not every move is from God. And some moves could be ill-advised. And, and I know that in many instances, we, we might be looking at the size of the paycheck. Now, I speak like this because Mamlaka has many people working in the diaspora all over the place, from the Middle East to the U.S. to Europe, who, who listen to us and have been part of us. And it's, it's good to consider the opportunity that you find before you and ask hard questions and ask, is this from God? What is the opportunity cost of this move? Say it's a relocation and you're getting a triple or double promotion uh, to go and take on this new uh, great task. And it comes with all the perks and the privileges. Um, and you may want to pause and consider what is the impact on the family? The money might come in. That might not be the problem. And there will be other privileges of travel and so on and so forth. But what is the opportunity cost? For Elimelech, I think for people of Israelite origin, now people of faith, um, the question of worship and your spirituality is important. Are you relocating to a place where there will be no spiritual connection? A place where, for them, definitely there was no temple of God in Moab. They were required to, uh, to be part of the sacrificial system that would cleanse both family and, 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 and the entire clan. So that periodically they will be taking offerings uh, before the high priest or before the priest and ensuring that they are well before them and, and the Lord. That would not happen in Moab. Where were they worshipping? Where were they doing their sacrifices? You know? So it seems like a very high cost for an Israelite to have paid simply to provide lechem, which is bread. And I'm sure there are alternative ways that could have been explored by Elimelech for his family to be sustained through the season of hunger. And, and, and so I, I'm saying this because it's important for you to consider this and, and say, um, am I paying a higher price for a larger paycheck without considering the future, for example, of my children? What will this move do to the, to the, to the faith of my children, for example? And if the job is requiring that you're permanently traveling and working and so on, so you don't even have enough time to come and erect an altar, for the family and teach them the ways of the Lord, then you could be very well slipping back to the days of the judges. And in the days of the judges, how the, the book opens is that after the death of Joshua and the generation that outlived him, there came another generation that neither knew the Lord nor the things the Lord had done. There was nobody to pass on the baton of faith. And some of these could be just those decisions to relocate 
um, to take on another job. I was saying to the earlier service that last week my brother was here, some of you saw him, and one of the things that I remember we had a conversation with him is he worked for the United Nations, and at one time he was given a really hefty promotion, but it was requiring a relocation to another country. And, and, and we had a long debate with him, and part of what he told me, I'll not take the job. And it was much earlier in life when the money was really needed. Um, and I looked at the paycheck and I said, okay, you're a man of great courage to say no to this kind of, you know, and he said, because his children at that time were transitioning from, you know, yeah, um, adolescence into, into teenage and so on. And he said, you know, if I miss five years of this kid's life, it's a very significant chunk in terms of their formation, especially spiritual formation. And it's a time when children need their dad, you know, to keep them on the straight and the narrow. And I remember him saying he's not going to take the job. And it was a very difficult decision uh, because there was pressure from his boss and it felt like a snub, you know, how do I appoint you to this position and then you say no. But he said no to it and he didn't take it. And I thought, in retrospect, you know, it was a very mature spiritual decision for somebody to have taken, especially given the needs that he had at that time, uh, to be able to see the opportunity cost would be way higher than the paycheck that I get. God is a God of justice and is a God who is kind and generous. Many years later now, he's able to, children have gone through university, so he's able to take a job. Now he works somewhere in Mozambique, and, you know, he's not the poorer for it. But the children went through, um, you know, their the, the tumultuous years with their father present, you know, and able to reinforce values that he thought are important for the future. So decisions like those are important to make, to avoid the kind of disaster that Elimelech would see his family slide into. He wouldn't see because he would be gone. But this desolation that now Naomi finds herself in, taking care of her daughters-in-law, who are also widowed, dealing with her own grief, her own loss of a husband, and the loss of two children, um, it's a very hard place to be. And so I'm just saying um, it's important for us to look at the future um, and the impact on, on, on our spirituality, the generations that are to come, and the dreams that, and hopes that we have for their own formation. Because I might pay a, put a good paycheck in my pocket, but what does that mean for my children's faith going forward, for example? So it's good to balance and have those conversations. I'm not saying you always say no. There are times that you can see the move itself might be beneficial all around, including spiritually. Then you take it. But make it a considered decision. Don't be careless about it, and don't be too, um, what, casual about it. By casual means just look at how much money I'll be making, and I go with the money, and I forget other things in the future. So, at this point of deep grief, we are told, now Naomi, then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God always provides for his people. And though your business might have gone through a difficult time, you know, or you might have lost a job or things like that might have happened, that's not who you are. It doesn't define your future. And so within that, that um, shaking, th there is something that God can provide. And maybe there is something that he's teaching you to go through uh, for a season not permanently. Here, God already has provided. And this news is coming all the way in the fields of Moab. So there's generous provision by God. 
Naomi has a spiritual sensitivity to say, we don't have to stay here. Things haven't gone well. Yes, I'm grieving. Yes, I'm in pain. Yes, there's almost a total loss. This is a disaster. But she rose up and pointed herself towards the direction where she knew there would be hope. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Um, one of the elements about the Ezer Kenegdo, the helper, suitable for the man, is her incredible ability and her incredible resilience to persist, to adapt, and to continue. It's something that is built in, in her DNA. Sometimes when the man is present, she does look quite weak. But in the event of disaster, and in this case, all the men are removed. Somehow, she is able to pull herself, sometimes from very dark places, even depression. And in order to propagate the species, it's like there's a homing device saying, you have to go on, you cannot give up. And she wakes up against all odds and begins a new journey. And you meet her three, five years down the road, she's a totally different person. It's a very interesting thing. I've, I had the opportunity to observe that when my father died. And, and, and um, at one point I thought we'd lost my mom because she was in such d- deep grief and such deep mourning. Um, because women, again, are very highly developed in terms of their emotional connections, uh, their desire and their need for relationship. My father and, 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 and my mom were pretty close. And, and she was quite dependent on my dad. Again, he was a very good provider. He gave cover for every... My mom didn't have to do anything when my father was a, a, alive, even though she was a working woman herself. But when he died, she faded, you know, and she couldn't deal with the emotions of loss. And she had never perceived this as a possibility, her life without my dad. But by and by, I think when she realized she had four teenagers to raise, somehow she got the strength to pull herself out of depression, out of desolation, out of grief and deep mourning, and somehow pick up herself, go back to the workplace, and, and, and begin the journey all over again without provision uh, from, from my dad. And, and so I observed this and I said, there's something about resilience, about adaptability, about persistence um, for a woman, especially when she has children left, she gets the strength to go on. I say this because it's not the same experience as men. Uh, when men lose their spouses, uh, we are lost. And, and, and somehow, to get direction again, most men will choose to marry much earlier than they ought, even before the full mourning has happened, sometimes to the loss of the children. Uh, Because we are not as adaptable, we are not as resilient, though we are supposed to be stronger, when it comes to those emotional things, it's like women do it better than men do. And so 
my mom was able to continue, raise four teen- teenagers in, in very tumultuous waters with very little pay, and somehow none of us was lost. We all became something or somebody, you know, in life. And, and if you met her years later, you wouldn't know the kind of loss that she had incurred. She had found the inner strength to be able to persist and provide. And, and this is the resilience and adaptability. In the absence of Adam, the provider, she's not only able to be the propagator, she steps into the role of provider and sometimes does it excellently. Playing both roles. Again, men do not as easily step into a woman's role and are able to carry it on. I don't even know that we are able to do that. In the absence of the mother in the home, um, something seems to have died in the house in terms of life and joy and so on. If a household is being led purely by a man, there's something that the woman brings in that is unique to her. I think it's tied to the Ezer Kenegdo calling that she has from God. And here you have a woman in deep grief, in deep sorrow, but still able to pick herself up, make decisions, even in that confusion, and start heading in the right direction. And soon enough, you will see the home begin to be put together in a way that it can be called a home again, and life will return. So I think it's part of the makeup of, of, of what it means to be um, a woman. Again, if you observe homes where the husband has departed, after several years, they not only survive, the family begins again to thrive in the future. Whereas the same cannot be said of homes that have been left, men who have been left on their own. It takes us way much more time and, and, and energy and effort for a home to thrive. I don't even know that it thrives without a mother. Um, I think it's in the calling of being a Zer Kenegdo. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The dead meaning her sons uh, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's affirming their role. Girls, you're still young. You can restart your life. You're not in the same place with me. I'm much older. I probably will never get married, never get other children. But that doesn't have to be your fate. You're young enough. Go marry. Start families. Find joy. Find a place. Find rest. Very affirming woman. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Something else that women are good at. You know, you don't struggle to express emotion. You don't struggle to express sorrow. You, and, and this is healthy. This is healthy. We, we find that we, we, we hold in um, a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow. Uh, and we were joking, you know, in, 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 and in times of loss and great change, we are not as adaptable. That's what I'm saying. We are not as adaptable. A man can lose his job, and it can take the wife a year to know that he lost his job. Because every day he wakes up and dresses and then goes. He's trying to deal with, with loss. We don't deal well with loss. And we can sustain a facade of who we were because it's not as easy for us to bow down to the, the, the new realities and step down and say, you know, this is it. Again, it has to do with adaptability of women. 
Women can marry easily across social status, economic status, culture, even racial boundaries and lines. They don't seem to face the women. And when you look at that person in years to come, they have assimilated into the culture, they have been indigenized into whatever new they went into, and they look like they were born there. That's something that really boggles our minds sometimes. You know, I, I, I have friends we grew up with, uh, girls that we knew each other closely. And when we became adults, they married into where Cameroon and other countries. And years later, you meet them and you're like, are you the same person I used to know? You know, they have become part of that culture. They have indigenized into it and they are thriving within that. It's something that we are not able to do ourselves very well. Um, I was recalling the, you know, the story of Queen Esther, you know, a very young girl. She's orphaned, you know, she's vulnerable, she's a Hebrew girl in Assyria, completely different culture from, from Israel. Then, because of God's grace and her incredible beauty, she's picked and she becomes the new queen. And it doesn't take too long before she adapts into that culture, and very soon she's calling the shots. Her people are threatened, and she has such a voice that she speaks, and the king has to perform. And then you have this little vulnerable Hebrew girl who's suddenly queen and so powerful, she's actually determining you know, how the world should be run from that perspective. That ability to adapt is an inc- it must be a gift that is divinely given. Uh, among, among the women. And it's used well, it ensures the survival of the species. I've often wondered whether that is why women outlive men. In, in the sense that, and mostly, you know, you hear someone so he survived by a widow and children, you know? And, and men, most women outlive their husbands. Um, and it, it's almost a natural selection where the stronger species will, will outlive the, the one that will, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go there. <laughs> But the fact that the species will survive better under her than under him, it looks like a kind of a natural selection, not to exclude God, but God as the author of that natural selection because he wants the species to continue. And many times the women will outlive the men and the children will go on to do well um, after that. It's probably linked to this. But anyway, um, Naomi is at pains to insist that her daughters-in-law should should go back and, and, you know, pick up their lives and continue. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Opa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this, of course, we know, is one of the most significant covenant statements in the Old Testament. It's, it's so powerful that I don't think you can find something parallel to this in ter- terms of loyalty, in terms of, of dedication, in terms of commitment. Um, it's what's supposed to be like a marriage covenant vow. But this is not even marriage. This is just a relationship between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And this is what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Then she says, and oath me, the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That level of commitment is mind-boggling. 
And, and, and this girl is even more incredible to imagine that this commitment is coming not from an Israelite, but from a Moabite woman, a Moabite widow, who has nothing to gain, by the way, by following Naomi. Because Naomi is a widow too. Naomi doesn't know where she's going. She hasn't been in her country for over 10 years. So she's going back to what? To nothingness. She herself says, there's nothing I'm going back to. And yet the commitment is total, it's unequivocal, it's unqualified. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What do you say? Hi, Abbas Twende. And they go. But it's a foretaste of the degree of assimilation that Ruth is willing to undergo in order not to be separated from Naomi. It's going to be so total that in the future, none of us even knows that Ruth is a Moabite name. We think it's a Hebrew name, and we name our children Ruth. That wasn't an Israelite name, but it will become culturized into Hebrew uh, tradition because of the commitment of this woman. And somehow God will look for a way of weaving her into the greater promise, where he had promised that in the future, I'll put an enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed um, of the serpent. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush your head. She will be part of the fulfillment of that promise. And it comes from this deep degree of amazing commitment. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, and the whole town was tired because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Most of us do not have the honesty and the courage to tell such things to God, right? Because she's angry with God. And part of the emotions of grief are that. There is denial. There is anger. There is blame long before there is acceptance. And most of that anger is channeled towards God. You know? But we, don't, we, we want to be good Christians, you know, oh, you know, it was the Lord's will. Yet you're angry. You know, Martha and Mary, when they lost their brother Lazarus and they knew he was a buddy of Jesus, when Jesus showed up four days later, they said, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. That's what they were really saying. You know, what are you coming to do? It's late. The guy is dead. And Jesus has to explain, didn't I tell you if you have faith, you will see great things. Okay, well, what great things. Oh, your brother will rise again. Tunajua, yeah, we've been taught theology. There's a resurrection day, it's coming. But we're talking about today. Then he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life is not an event in the future. It's a person and I'm standing here with you. That's the point he was making. So, we need to learn how to go unedited before God. And I pray that your period of fasting will teach you not to put artificial barriers or language or gestures when you're approaching God. God knows you exactly as you are. He knows your temperament. He knows when you're angry. He knows when you're happy. He knows when you're joyful. He knows when you don't want anything to do with him. He knows. And so when you're going to him and you speak these things, it's not breaking news to him. Hiya, you can talk like that to me. Where? It's not an issue. He, 
before the word is in your tongue, he knows it fully well. So even at the point of forming the thought, he already saw and designed what he wanted to say. So don't be superficial or artificial before God. Empty yourself before him. If you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you feel, God, you really don't have my back. You tell me that you've assured me that you're with me. Where are you? I don't see you. I don't feel you. You know? So where are you? Have those conversations with God. Naomi could tell God, you know, don't call me. Even that Naomi pleasant, I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. You know? Because the Lord, not somebody else, has dealt terribly with me. I went away full, now Nimerudi empty. So what is there to celebrate? Be unedited before God, but only before God. Okay? So don't go spread about a bad report among other people and turn them from their faith. Take your issues before God. That was what David was good at, you know? And he would cry to the Lord. Some of those psalms that we read here, we call them now messianic psalms. Um, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? That was the psalmist crying out because he was feeling God has forsaken him. But unknown to him, as a mouthpiece and predecessor of Jesus Christ, he was actually speaking, mouthing prophetically what his great, great, great um, uh, son would say in the future on the cross. As Christ cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were the words of King David. At a time when he has been pursued, chased by Saul, he's, he's just at the end. He says, you have forsaken me. Go unedited before God. And you'll have a real relationship. Because as you mourn to God, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Why are they comforted? Because they mourn. If you do not mourn, you cannot be comforted. And so go in your mourning, in your frustration before God. Then he'll come and pick you up and give you the comfort that you desire. Because he already knows that you need it. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Sometimes when you are very angry and frustrated and in deep mourning, you are unable to see the opportunities that are around you. The Bible says she returned to the country of Bethlehem with Ruth, the Moabite. So she's not as empty as she thinks. Because Ruth is with her. This amazing, committed, dedicated woman. And when she steps into Bethlehem, it's time for the barley harvest. So already we have a glimpse of hope. That there's the rudimentary or the basic building blocks that God will use to rebuild the future of Naomi and the future of Ruth. Next week we will track with Ruth because I wanted us to look at her both as a working woman but also as a homemaker. Because last week we talked about strongly about the man at the workplace and the women might have asked themselves, what about us? We are also at the workplace. You know, are we in the wrong place? Are we majoring in the minors? Should we be just at home getting babies? And the answer is yes, but not only getting babies, 
that's one of the things you should be doing, I hope. But beyond that, you're also in the workforce. And, 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 and I think uh, statistically and where we are, the modern culture already uh, has the working woman as a foregone conclusion. So we are not going to go back. Uh, 100, 150 years ago, less than 10% of women were in the workplace as paid labor force. But two events changed this, the two world wars, World War I and World War II. The carnage, the destruction, and the death, you know, that happened uh, during those two world wars literally zapped the labor force, especially in places like Europe, uh, from the marketplace. Because, you know, these were the working people. But by the end of World War I alone, over 10 million combatants uh, who were part of the labor force before were dead. 7.7 million either prisoners of war or missing in action. Another 20 million wounded and maimed beyond engagement at the workplace. So obviously, the women needed to step in into the workforce, first of all, to support the war effort because it was their husbands and their sons who were out there dying. So they, they entered into industry and the service industry in order to start providing. The atrocities of Second World War were even worse. About 60 million dead by the end of the war. And so the question of women in the labor force is already a foregone conclusion. And once the women went into the workplace, the employers realized that they were very good and very productive. In fact, they were doing more for less pay. And then eventually, their places became established at the workplace. So what is the proper balance then for a working woman today who feels, I want to be meaningfully engaged at work, but at the same time, I hear this call to be the propagator of the species. What is the right balance? For more of that, come on Sunday. The Lord bless you.